0: Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are joined by Paul Austin. Paul is the CEO and founder of The Third Wave, The Third Wave is a public benefit corporation. Their mission and vision, reading from their website, is to share trusted research-based content that helps you feel safe, supported, and empowered as you follow your path towards personal transformation. Our vision is to help co-create a global movement that embraces psychedelic use as a way to heal ourselves and our world. We're playing our part by building a cohesive platform that meets individual needs, offers guided support, enables integrated experiences, and fosters meaningful connections across our global ecosystem. Really enjoyed this conversation with Paul. We discussed the utility of microdosing, the importance of rites of passage and community. We talked about psychedelic literacy literacy and education, altered states leading to altered traits, and much, much more. Paul's a super, super thoughtful guy very articulate, very creative, a real trailblazer. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Austin. All right, we're here with Paul Austin of The Third Wave. Thanks for joining us on Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers,
1: Paul. Hey, Steve. Hey, Breed. It's uh, good to be here. Excited to dive in. Welcome. Good to chat
0: with you. So um in the spirit of diving in why don't you introduce yourself to our audience for those who might not know who you are or know anything about the third wave
1: So in 2010 no 2009 end of 2009 before between Christmas and New Year's I did my first mushroom psychedelic mushroom experience I was 19 years old and a sophomore in college um and it was interesting but not like you know, I did about 1.7 grams, I think. So interesting of cubensis. Interesting, but not like profoundly mystical and life-changing. And then about five months later, I did LSD for the first time, probably about 250 micrograms with a few friends outdoors on like a beautiful mid-spring day at the beach in Lake Michigan, um, forest and a lot of other beautiful, amazing things. And that's when the sort of light bulb turned on for me that there there might be something to these 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 psychedelics so about two weeks after that i went to tanzania with a school trip i was uh, studying medicine at the time i studied medicine the first couple of years at undergrad and then i took organic chemistry and evolutionary biology and i played soccer and was in a fraternity at the same time and i was like I, i'm not gonna keep doing this <laughs> let's read that's Probably a lot at- <laughs> those are <laughs> incompatible <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> i gotta make yeah. some decisions <laughs> some choices here and uh, and the school that i went to was is it was a liberal arts school called hope college so um uh, Christian reform, but also very, you know, I think very high level in terms of pre-med and getting people in the medical school and all that. So it was just too intense of a schedule. Anyway, um, uh, so at the age of 19, I went to Tanzania for field studies, which essentially meant going on safari and brought some LSD with me to Tanzania because it's quite easy to to at that point to travel with it. And then proceeded to do a couple hits of acid in the in the Serengeti and the Ngorongoro Crater, two of the sort of most well-known national parks in Tanzania. And that's when I sort of felt this sense of interconnectedness to everything. I sort of was plugged into this circle of life. Sort of felt the magic that it could bring. And so from that point forward, I really thought, you know, it'd be hard to live a more conventional life after having these experiences uh, with LSD. What would it look like to pursue, you know, at least for my 20s, a a, de- a decade of unconventional living where I, you know, pursue entrepreneurship, nomadic traveling, uh, writing books, uh, public speaking, and just sort of like throw myself out there. Cause you don't have a lot, a whole lot to lose in your, in your twenties. And so, you know, at the age of 21, I moved to Turkey. I taught English there for a year, um, in a private school, took those skill sets, applied sort of the four-hour workweek principle of move to Thailand, live really inexpensively, bootstrap my first business. And then I sold that business in 2017 uh, while living in New York City and proceeded to live, you know, basically 10 places in 10 years. So at this point, I'm in Miami, but I've lived in Eden in Utah. I've lived in New York, Oakland, um, Lisbon, Oaxaca, Chiang Mai, and uh, Izmir in Turkey. And the, the sort of constant thread through all that has been psychedelics and the work that I've done with psychedelics. Um, and sort of like being at the sort of pioneering forefront futuristic application of how psychedelics might transform our paradigms and models. And so naturally through that, I've I thought the biggest gap when we started third wave in twenty fifteen, the biggest gap was just education and, and general stigma. I think the stigma started to recede greatly in twenty eighteen when Michael Pollan published How to Change Your Mind. And now you know, I know it still exists and it's still out there, and, and sometimes for good reason. Uh, but it's 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 not near to the point that it was, you know, even seven years ago. And so the idea with third wave was, um, how could we use a topic like microdosing to to sort of normalize responsible psychedelic use from a cultural lens because as a student of history so after medicine I ended up getting a degree in history as a student of history the patterns repeat themselves over 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 time and what happened in the 60s was Leary basically came out and said let's dose everyone in high doses of acid you know you had the Mary Pranksters you had Ken Kesey you had it associated with the Vietnam war and so I thought you know if we're going to do this again let's be a little bit more clever and let's start with microdosing instead of like full dosing. And if people want to dip their toe in further, they can do that. So that's the lens through which I've, I've built. There were a couple other projects as well. I started a legal psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands called Synthesis, which is now about a retreat center in Oregon uh, to help pioneer legal psilocybin experiences there. Uh, wrote a book on microdosing and um, just launched a training program for coaches where we're training people on the skill of psychedelics, which I think we'll, we'll talk about more.
0: Mm-hmm. I appreciate you giving us that intro because it 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 features something that I see in a lot of folks who are in this movement uh, industry, whatever word you want to pick to describe it, and that is a a life altering psychedelic experience, right? Where the toothpaste is out of the tube and you can't get it back in. You see yourself differently. You see the world differently, and then you're sort of confronted with this question what do I do now? How do I now live with intention? Uh, Because I feel like I can't choose not to.
1: Right. It's like a matter of alignment, so to say, right? Once you realize the truth of who you are, the truth of of what is through some of these uh, psychedelic experiences, I mean, many people do go back to the lives they once lived, but there's this sort of awareness of friction and tension and maybe even disease that almost has to Mm. be Adjusted or 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 healed for someone to really grow and develop, so psychedelics do a great job with awareness, and then you know sometimes that breaks people there, the, these aren't i I think I was fortunate to some degree that i i i I had a reasonably solid childhood I had no early adverse childhood experiences uh you know I had relatively good attachment. Um, and so even when I dove into, I, I definitely had a couple of bad trips, which fucking freaked the shit out of me. But generally, yeah. I was safe, and the experiences were really profound and, and meaningful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, something that I'm sure you, t- you talk about on your website and in your coaching programs that we talk a lot about in the psychedelic assisted therapy world, and that is uh set setting, but also integration. Right. You you have these profound what could be profound experiences or incredibly destabilizing experiences. And sometimes what makes all the difference into whether or not it becomes life changing in a good way is the container and the education, the support that you have to make sense of it and integrate it into your life. Right.
1: And and I, I love that you mentioned those three because set is like the prep. Kind of what's your mindset going in. Setting is the experience it's when you're actually sitting. What's what's the actual environment? Integration is is the after, so to say. And integration is, I think it's it's, it's fractal in nature in that it's both individual and collective. And right now we're really focused a lot on individual integration because that's the easiest place Mm -hmm. to start is changing the hearts and minds of individuals, so to say, or healing them. But inevitably integration has to become collective. And I think that's the much larger task that's at hand is how do you create a system, a society, business, politic, law that's rooted in sort of interconnectedness or some of these truths that we come to, uh, when, when we're working with psychedelics, what is an integrative landscape look like, so to say. Right. So that way it's not
0: just what, who we are inside, but it's, it's what's reflected outside of us as well. I'm curious to hear you sort of riff on, um, hopefully this wasn't, it wasn't a rhetorical question The like the, how do we create community, uh, yeah. and a collective around this type of, enlightened consciousness or the the attitudes that people experience changes in when they have personal psychedelic experiences. Because I see with the third wave, like you're trying to increase psychedelic literacy, right? You have great education, free education on your website about different psychedelic compounds and uh, instructions on microdosing, things like that. But what do you see? I mean, who knows exactly what to do, but what do you see are, are maybe some of the paths forward with creating and building the kind of community you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so I'll zoom out a little bit because um, uh, I recently read a couple of books by a guy named Martin Praktal. Martin is, uh, he's half Swiss French and he's also half Navajo. And he wrote a book called Long Life, Honey in the Heart. He essentially moved to Guatemala and became a shaman uh, near Lake Atitlan. And he has this beautiful end to one of his books, which talks about this role of initiation and sort of Mm -hmm. the quest, particularly for men, to, um, be initiated, uh, you know, and this was started with the work largely of, of Robert Bly and Iron John. And I mean, actually Joseph Campbell really first and then, and then mm-hmm. Robert Bly. And, and so Martin, what he says is like, this isn't, this isn't going to be as simple as just doing these rites of passage in a Western industrialized world. The, the, the fabric of that goes much, much deeper, right? These indigenous traditions of, for example, initiation have gone on for eons, you know, sometimes thousands of years um time time is sort of the best arbiter of of um what is valuable and we as a western industrialized world is we're we're fairly nascent in development you know just 3 to 400 years uh, a lot of what we are going through feels alien we feel alienated because it's rooted in sort of this premise of extractivism and in order to heal that there's there's a sense of you know communities need to be uh, they, they, they need to be more integral to, to who we are. Uh, they need to be more integral to our lives and that could be reflected in the way that we live, right. In, in most suburban landscape, we were talking about college earlier, right? So many people love college because, because they get to live in a dorm, right? They get to live with mm. all their friends. And then we graduate from that. We live in these little isolated boxes. Like, that, I mean, you know, it's just so alienating for that. And then you go to you, people work in jobs where it's largely rooted in competition, Instead of support, it's a, it's a lot of like deep, kind of manipulation and other stuff. And I think people are just realizing there's there's a better way in which we can live. And so if we if we if we if we look at community as really a central healing component, um, because nothing is nothing can be removed from it as a as a as a human. It's it's part and parcel of who we are. Then then we're really looking at, you know, how are we cultivating more pro-social tendencies? How are we cultivating more extroversion? How are we cultivating, you know, doing more things with our hands and less things in technology? So, so many people that I talk to about community, particularly like in the more in the tech space, are obsessed with what's the tactic? You know, what's the app? Is it going to be Discord Mm -hmm. or is it going to be Slack or is it WhatsApp? Where really the question is more like, what experiences are you creating for people that proved to be tremendously, um, you know, helpful for bonding and connection and authenticity and vulnerability and psychedelic retreats are a fantastic way to make that. I mean, when we think about community, we often think of church, right? Whether it's, you know, I grew up going to church every Sunday for four hours, every Sunday, basically mission trips and all the like. I know, you know, with in, in terms of where you guys are located in Utah, Mormonism is huge and that's often been mm-hmm. sort of the community that's provided, so probably the new community is something like, or a new element of that community is a ritual. It's something that happens consistently. It's something that I think needs to be rooted in some sort of spiritual practice of connection to source or mystery or something beyond. Um, but it can't be sort of rigid and dogmatic, like more traditional religions that, you know, because it's just, it doesn't adapt to the, what people are really looking for, I suppose the questions that we're, we're asking. Um You know, some examples, I think, of of communities that I really love to see develop are are these these places in like Costa Rica that are essentially starting villages. Um, And I'm sure you two have have heard of this. This is happening in British Columbia and many other places um, where, you know, you buy a plot of land and you build a home there and, uh, you know, they're starting to put schools in and they're sort of the intention is in the next 10 years to create this. This, this intentional community, a commune, essentially, right? So again, we're back to mm-hmm. things from the 60s that didn't go so well. Um, and so just like psychedelics didn't go so well, communes really didn't end up so well, uh, stigmatized because of sort of the cult mentality or, or what could emerge from that. And so I think another question that a lot of people are faced with when they're talking about community is, is just like what does healthy use of psychedelics look like? What is a, what is a healthy use of, of community? So to say, and um, how could that be essentially created in such a way where these communities are are sovereign in nature, where they become these these city states, these these places that have localized governance? Um, Balagis, who's this sort of tech, um, you know, brilliant guy, talks about the networked state and how the network state will evolve from the nation state, and that network state will have it will it will be a DAO that will have a type of Currency it will be rooted in both the cloud and physical places. Those physical places will be non-contiguous, meaning they do not need to share borders. Um, and I think that's a that's an interesting model for the role that psychedelics could play in like helping to develop the complexity that we navigate our sovereignty and sort of what country we consider ourselves a part of, which is, again, just really community.
2: All of a sudden, psychedelics and Bitcoin... Uh- <laughs> blend together quite well huh
1: well there's that one quote from ai won't name the investor but you might know who says you know i finally understood bitcoin when i did mushrooms you know, it's
2: gonna... <laughs> uh, yeah it's oh, yeah. That's a fascinating the consciousness
0: question. blockchain yeah right? exactly
2: yeah i was going to ask though in this because i agree with you completely on the the power of groups the power of ritual ceremony and the mystical and bringing people together you know we love doing group work retreat work or group work. Um, But in this online world, what does that look like? Um, Besides that commune idea that you pointed out didn't go so well, you know, what does it look like on the internet? Um, Is there a community around Third third Wave? How do you see it? Yeah, and that's where
1: the, I I think internet, my, my personal sense is like, it can only be a part It's my sense is it's difficult to build community well, purely online. In fact, this is even what I would say, like with third wave, we've largely been virtual. We've started to do some retreats as part of the coaching training program and the way our community has developed in the last year, just from doing two retreats. I mean, these are, these are high ticket items. Um, These are coaches who are really committed. But still, just from doing those tuned retreats, we've seen some, some outsized returns. I mean, we've done webinars for our online community. There's definitely, um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of the classes or the programs that we do, we have a forum where people can interact and navigate. We'll likely launch a Discord channel at some point. I would love um, to, to make Third Wave into a DAO as well um, and, and facilitate that. That's definitely of interest. But the sort of decentralized landscape of technology, DeFi and blockchain and DAOs and crypto, I see it as still being quite nascent. Uh, It's sort of in toddler stage at this point. I think it'll be another, like I don't know, two to three to four years before it really becomes useful, even in the way that I would want to use it to to further develop an online community. It feels like, just Uh to land this, even the tools that we have available for development um, cultivating community online are still quite young and immature. And I'm sure we'll even True. develop those further. To, to Cause like I always come back to, I'm like, this is a conversation we have internally at the team. It's like, do we start a Slack for our community? Do we start a discord? Do we start a forum? Do we start a Reddit thread? Do we start a Facebook group? Do we start a WhatsApp group? Right. There's like eight different choices and not one is really any better than the other is, is sort of my, right. my sense. So that I think has been the hardest gap to figure out is how do you get more of more hive Mm. mind stuff going on with you know the people in our community
2: yeah it's it's i'm just thinking of uh well sometimes then the the internet and the humans do what they're gonna do like i'm thinking of TikTok and how yesterday my two 13 year old boys went to the minions movie with their friends and apparently there's this trend where uh teenagers young kids will dress up in suits and go see the new minions movie and they'll cheer at certain times because this was a tiktok thing <laughs> i looked it up and it's hilarious
0: <laughs> like the it's, way trends yeah.
2: spread right the way trends <laughs> spread now it's crazy
0: well and memes. and the internet and and thing, yeah exactly the mimetic nature of these messages are viral. I love the term virality because it is quite literal. What happens? They become mind viruses that now can spread Mm -hmm. because we're all connected via the internet. And when I say all of us, you know, you hear people, um, like Tristan Harris talk about, uh, what is it like 80% of the content on a platform like Twitter is produced by maybe 6% of the users. And so you talk about community online. There are certain things that I think online as a tool, as you said, is not going to be able to transcend. Certain limitations it will not be able to transcend, um, that will, it cannot be a one to one replacement for in person communing. There's a difference, I think, between communing and communicating. Online tools are great communication tools. I can send you a message through email or on a Slack channel or in discord where I can send you a video on Snapchat or whatever. And it's this sort of asynchronous communication we can call on the phone, but there's, there is, there's gotta be, I mean, as a psychologist, I just, I want to believe this. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be something unique that we can't transcend with digital communication about being in the physical presence of another person. Not the least of which are freaking pheromones, like you're actually smelling another human being. Um, And, you know, if you believe in, in energy and vibrations and that kind of shit, then there's, there's that, that you're feeling from the other person too. Um, but like you talk about the communes, these are people living together. Uh, and when human beings gather in collectives, there are certain things that history teaches us and human psychology, the study of human psychology teaches us tend to happen. That I wonder if psychedelics used consciously, purposely, and skillfully, as you talk about could help us evolve above, like, uh, hierarchies right human beings tend to be hierarchical apes
1: right so maybe it can help us to get out of that and i think that's sort of like a so that so th- yeah that that that's a big question right is do okay i want i want to i want to back out here because what's coming up for me is like altered states lead to altered traits is a, mm-hmm. is a common mm-hmm. phrase that i like and those altered traits whether it's values or behaviors or whatever, right? It's it's almost like how how can the 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 insight of a psychedelic that input be translated into an output where um, the our behaviors reflect that sort of interconnected nature, right? And so to to root mm-hmm. this, I think concepts and principles around regenerative farming, right? I don't think it's any coincidence that Michael Pollan wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and then went into writing about psychedelics after that. The two are intimately tied together, right? So regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming. I would say even with what Elon is doing, in some ways, this is like the, you know, he's sort of the grandfather of a regenerative economy uh, where he's creating solar and he's creating, um, you know, electric cars and uh, there's a way to, to essentially build systems in society that don't require extractivism in order to function. But that's a huge and heavy lift. Um, and it it's such a long timeline and horizon from and way longer than one lifetime from that awareness or that insight to, again, we were talking about integrative living, to actually being in a situation and place where you're living integrated, right? That probably for a full societal transformation that probably won't happen in our lifetime. So I think it's also just like, it's a little hard to fathom and imagine what that future actually looks like. There's a part of me that wants to think like we can, we can cut time in half and we can actually warp time to make it happen much quicker. And some might argue that that will be necessary to avoid sort of catastrophic, um, you know, catastrophic apocalypse like through climate change or whatever. Um, but there's another part of me that thinks, Hey, this just might take a while.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm remembering a quote that from, uh, I believe ready player one, which is quite apropos. It's like for a bunch of hairless apes, we've actually managed to invent some pretty incredible things.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so I hope we can invent ourselves into progress and not into annihilation. Cause that's, that's my worry. It's like the, I forget who the quotes attributed to, but we have, uh, what is it? Paleo, Paleolithic emotions, um, industrial, social structure, and godlike technology, something like that. I'm totally butchering it. But um, we, we've we developed in some ways, probably too much. And it's like people who take steroids and their muscles develop fast uh, and outpace their tendons and ligaments. And so they easily injure themselves. So we we've, we've got some strong muscles, but we're in danger of Tearing ligaments because we're developing asymmetrically
1: we're developing asymmetrically, and the balance of that is wisdom right that's what people mm-hmm. often say that the the sort of um or depth of knowing or 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 Jung might call it shadow work right where you essentially confront death and you see through death and you move through it going back to our conversation on on initiation right if we have these pale paleo, paleolithic emotions, but we have the 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 technology of gods. Well, we to to balance this out, we also have to have the um, interesting enough the insights of God or the depths of gods or the capacity of gods, right? And so, you know, as Nietzsche said, God is dead. So these gods that we once thought were uh, above us or below us or outside of us psychedelics are now helping to help us to realize that there is actually a god inside of us and that to manage the complexity of this technology that we've now been granted and not see everything go sideways how can psychedelics going back to these altered traits cultivate traits around wisdom and compassion and awareness and understanding and that way the this these sort of enlightened buddhas right throughout the the history of time we've seen we've seen the buddha we've seen jesus we've seen muhammad we've seen you know saint thomas aquinas we've seen many other highly 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 spiritually developed individuals um, that have led to these religions that have sort of you know lasted sometimes for thousands and thousands of years And i think now with tools like psychedelics or neurofeedback or breathwork or meditation the the capacity for enlightenment is becoming more accessible Right. And so then the capacity to cultivate that wisdom and depth sometimes through initiation or the environment in which we live, maybe is one of those ways that we can balance out the the technology that that we've been granted. Because I think without that stopgap, so to say, we, we we very well could sort of blow ourselves up for, for
2: lack of a better phrase. Yeah. I like that. Could you expand on the how you see initiation in this? Because, I mean, of course, I'm a Joseph Campbell fan. and But I'm just trying to connect that dot of of what you said about, uh, you know, these rites of passage and initiation with psychedelic community. Is it just like taking the medicine and opening up to that expanded worldview? So
1: from what I understand, you know, this this was true of the aboriginals. This was true of... Um uh you know people in in native american traditions this is true of the incans and and even the Aztecs this is true of um you know most indigenous landscapes around the world they they basically had this you know this process of initiation um and, and from what I understand the core of that was essentially confronting death basically killing the boy so the man could could arise from that and you know the Aboriginals had their way of doing it um, various indigenous groups in in terms of, you know, the Iroquois or the Incans had their way of doing it. And although it wasn't necessarily every single indigenous society used plant medicines, some did because my sense is they are much safer than other indigenous rituals or traditions where, you know, sometimes boys would be sent out in the wild to survive for two weeks or, you know, they'd have to fight wild animals or they would be beat. To an absolute pulp, uh, till they were on the verge of death physically, and so I think the the idea with psychedelics is it's sort of a more refined, sophisticated, safe way to allow for that initiation, to allow for the catharsis, um, and maintain physical health and well being. To allow for like that, that sort of that start of the hero's journey. Like, who am I? Why am I here? What am I here to do? What is my contribution? How do I not necessarily just live my life as a a sycophant, consuming, Uh but how do I actually grow up mature to contribute and be of service to something that is much, much way beyond what I could ever fathom or imagine?
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of your, so these comments about wisdom and the initiation being a, a process of obtaining wisdom. Um, and I'm thinking about it in terms of transcendence, like Maslow's top pinnacle of the hierarchy above self-actualization is transcendence Mm -hmm. to transcend those things that the human mind tends to accumulate or fall into traps, um, around, uh, if if we don't have greater perspective, and to me, perspective is another way of saying wisdom. And psychedelics have this incredible way of granting us the perspective I might attribute to a god. You talked about god and deity before, and these these bodhisattvas, right? These, these wise ones um, is one thing that a that a deity has that um, that a, a human's consciousness doesn't necessarily is eternal perspective. It sees all things at once. Everything is is one eternal now. And with that great perspective, we, it is not impulsive. It is not destructive. It it can make the quote unquote right choice because it has all the data. And if, if there's something that we hear like reliably from people coming out of these psychedelic experiences in which they felt a connection to God or the God within themselves, it is that uh, they have all these pro-social desires, Right they don't, not a whole lot of people come out of LSD or MDMA or psilocybin wanting to murder everybody. Right. right. Or wanting to dominate the competition <laughs> <laughs> or like, I finally found, I found out how I'm going to win at capitalism.
2: <laughs> so true. Okay. Can I insert a Terrence McKenna quote intermission just cause it keeps coming to mind and I love this one. That's uh Admit it. You aren't like them. You're not even close. You may occasionally dress dress yourself up as one of them. Watch the same mindless television shows as they do. Maybe even eat the same fast food sometimes. But it seems that the more you try to fit in, the more you feel like an outsider. Watching the normal people as they go about their automatic existences for every time you say club passwords like, have a nice day, and weather's awful today, A, you yearn inside to say forbidden things like, tell me something that makes you cry. Or what do you think deja vu is for? Face it, you even want to talk to that girl in the elevator. But what if that girl in the elevator and the balding man who walks past your cubicle at work are thinking the same thing? Who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on a conversation with a stranger. Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected. Find the others.
0: Holy crap. That's my new favorite quote. Find the others.
2: Find the
1: others. And that, I mean, that, that encapsulates it right there. Find the others who I, who I suppose, to go back to your point, um, Steve, find the others who can, who can see things from that eternal perspective right cuz that's who you want to play that's who you want to build businesses with that's who you want to have families with right it's the infinite game mm-hmm. it comes back to the infinite game versus finite game and how right. how expansive we can be in our in our in our perspective
0: that's why it's so fun to go to like conferences like psychedelic conferences uh or just meetups and groups with people who have had transcendent experiences cuz there's an automatic kinship right you you can you can do we found the others right you can do what Terrence is talking about and we can skip mm-hmm. past the how's your day how's the weather and straight to mm-hmm. you know what makes you cry uh and you, you see that popping up a lot especially in this sort of, uh, relatively post covid era i'm noticing there's lots of um integration circles or there men's circles i've noticed i'm just because i'm a dude i've been looking at mm-hmm. uh communities for men to get together and do man shit Um, But some of that man shit isn't, uh, it's not talk about football, it's stare into each other's face and talk about our insecurities and receive validation um, and challenge each other, right? Not the stereotypical, what some might call toxic masculinity, but the enlightened masculine and cultivating that in one another.
1: It's yeah, important. I'm
0: going off on a tangent, but yeah.
1: No, I mean it's important. It, it kind of it, it puts a full circle on all all the conversations that we've been having around initiation and alignment and the role that psychedelics mm-hmm. might play. And uh, I think it's part. it's particularly is true and hits home for men because the the more masculine personality, it tends to be more rigid, closed off. Uh, uh, there tends to be more emotion mm-hmm. that's repressed. There tends to be less extroversion. Um, and part of what psychedelics, you know, that I experienced with, with psychedelics was it helped me to be a lot more pro-social and extroverted and started to navigate that landscape. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of the closed offness of some people and stigma you mentioned earlier, um, this, this is a nice segue into the coaching versus clinical world, Mm -hmm. at least the way I've been thinking about it. So I'm a licensed psychologist, psychotherapist, been been a therapist for many years, And I've noticed that um, still, even though there's much progress been done around the stigma around seeking help from a therapist, there are a lot of people, especially men, who wouldn't be caught dead in a therapy office, would never go to therapy. Usually Mm -hmm. their only experience of therapy is when their romantic partner drags them into couples counseling, Mm. and then they don't want to be there, and then they feel ganged up on because the therapist is talking about how he needs to do better by her. So the coaching world, though, something I've observed is that uh, men are often a lot more willing to get a coach mm-hmm. to get help from a coach than they are from a therapist because getting help from a therapist implies, and these are terrible implications that aren't true, but implies that they are weak, that they are crazy, that they have a mental illness. They're going to go talk about how their dad didn't love them and why, why am I going to do that? I don't want to do that. Um, but they can go to a coach, right? Cause I had a baseball coach and that was cool Uh, And a coach will help me kick ass, and I like kicking ass. Um, But a lot of the coaches I've met, especially the really good ones, there's a lot of overlap between what psychotherapists do and really good coaches do in getting people to go inside, really look at their shadow, and make substantive changes. So I'm curious, Paul, because you talked about you're doing coaching trainings. Um, Would you mind talking about the coaching work that you're doing around psychedelics too?
1: Yeah. So... The way I look at coaching is um, therapy, and this, this 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 is a generalization. So all generalizations are are going to have exceptions, but generally speaking, right. um, therapy, the therapeutic orientation, is helpful to get people to sort of back to baseline, um, especially if they're they're going through a midlife crisis and they're facing their shadow for the first time, and you know. You, just to use your example and maybe they need to start to see a therapist to actually understand what's going on down there and how do they navigate it and that I would consider to be part of of getting back to baseline and then coaching to really help with expansion performance becoming your quote unquote best self now for all of us in the either therapeutic or personal development space there's there's never a time where you won't necessarily be confronted with shadow work the exception mm. would be if if you are quote unquote already enlightened um, or if you, um, basically, yeah, if you're already enlightened or, or you've self-transcended, um, if you're the Dalai Lama then, but most of us still have our, our shadow work to be doing. And so it's always sort of like, you gotta go, you still gotta go into the depths as, as Robert Bly said, you know, you gotta go into the swamp and bucket it out one by one. And that creates spaciousness for You know, the development to reach even higher peaks, because as you cultivate more depth, going back to wisdom and depth, as you cultivate more depth, you can build a bigger presence on top of that. So as as you both know, there are a lot of training programs that have come out in the last even just year now in the psychedelic Mm -hmm. space. They are by and large focused on the clinical medical therapeutic model. Most of their curriculum is focused on that orientation in terms of how psychedelics, why psychedelics are efficacious for clinical conditions, for healing in, in, in particular. Some are very clinical in that, like a CIS or a MAPS. Others like psychedelics today are, are less clinical in that, but they they, they still bring in a, a lot of doctors. Um all, the way that I've always looked at things is I love this quote by Buckminster Fuller, which is don't don't fix a broken system, just create a new one that makes the old one obsolete, right? So essentially it's getting mm-hmm. back into what we've talked about already, which is creating new paradigms. So what I'm really interested in is how coaching can be used to A, help individuals create new paradigms for, the, for themselves to clarify their vision, clarify what it is that they wish to create in the world. Um, and then... To actually take the steps necessary and to hold a certain level of accountability to help them reach that goal, that vision of, of what they are achieving, of what they are looking to, to bring out into the world. And the reason psychedelics, I think, are such effective tools at facilitating that is because the, at the higher dose level, they're very helpful in, in allowing us to zoom way out and see things from, again, this eternal perspective right? If, if time was not an issue, if money was not an issue, if I wasn't stuck in sort of the contractions and scarcity of the the monkey mind in everyday life, who is it that I would want to be? What is it that I would want to create, right? That, that sense of freedom and unconditional uh, capacity I think is really, really empowering. And so when you, when you're able to get people in that state and facilitate that, they are not going to be restricted by the normal fear in in sort of a, a, a normal everyday state. They'll have, they'll have this sort of uh, this capacity to dream, uh, this capacity to imagine that might not be feasible in a normal waking state. And then if you look at something like, let's say, microdosing, microdosing, which the jury is still out on, I know, from a from a research perspective, and we can talk more about that because I think it's developing in some interesting ways. But then you look at something like microdosing or even low dosing. Um, those are very helpful at sort of like Once you get the North Star set with visionary doses of psychedelics, how do you actually lubricate that path to make it just smoother? And so we look at practices and behaviors uh, like microdosing that help to facilitate BDNF brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. Uh, You know, microdosing is also anti-inflammatory, so it helps to manage chronic inflammation, uh, which allows for a better mood, more energy, things like that. Uh, and so much like you would take a supplement or much like you'd pay attention to your diet or you get eight hour, you know, I wear an aura ring, you get eight hours of sleep a night, right? What are those behavioral practices um, that are going to help to facilitate you creating what it is you wish to create? And so broadly then, if I zoom way out and I look at those three, visionary, doses microdosing and then non psychedelic modalities they could be diet exercise sleep they could be meditation yoga breathwork they could be you know hot cold thermogenesis you know there's many other modalities how, how do we how do we calibrate those three tools to facilitate outcomes first for ourselves that's a lot of what i focus on at least in our training program is first go within and apply this to you and learn how you are going to continue to adapt and then how do we help guide our clients and help them to 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 clarify to refine to feel empowered um, and how can psychedelics help us to to achieve that to 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 create that so I think that 's probably the main thing, whereas my sense is with the therapeutic lens, it tends to be a lot of like you you are you are struggling with depression you are you are struggling with you know opiate addiction use disorder, you are um you know you 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 have chronic ptsd from a very traumatic event and these tools are going to be phenomenal at helping you to open up the unconscious the subconscious open up the repressed memory open up you know that that part of yourself that wasn't loved and that you know you need to develop develop healthier attachment and i think a therapist is phenomenal for that so that is um it's 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 a both and world in that way i think both we need to balance both and ideally as more people heal What I'm also anticipating is there's a lot more healing that comes through with psychedelics. More and more people are going to want to step into that creative orientation. And so what I'm also preparing for is, you know, a decade from now, how do we how do we set this lens, the lens of creation as the core lens? Because right now, I think in psychedelics, the core lens is the therapeutic modality.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a great summary of the distinction, and I I wish in the real world it played out so simply. I'm just thinking of every client I've seen go through the process of therapy or coaching. Like, the past is never irrelevant, although it probably should be more irrelevant than it presents itself as, and the healing work is never really done, although there are some big skeletons in the closet that spill out, uh, often. At the time of your first psychedelic experience when you least want it to right. um, and uh, and yeah, we have a, a shortage of providers and like clinicians and coaches to send people to, especially with the regulations of state laws and country boundaries that i 'm faced with on a daily basis um, so yeah i'm just i 'm just realizing how interconnected those two approaches are especially in psychedelic medicine even in the clinical the clinical realm yeah i mean
1: we you know when i when i'd started even just to speak to that reed when i'd started synthesis you know we were doing these psilocybin wellness retreats and we we screened everyone out who was on a medication at that time we yeah. were very strict in that and there were still people who you know inevitably when they when they came to the retreat and did 7 grams of mushrooms thinking it's a wellness retreat you know they come to realize that their mom didn't love them or, you know, like there's that, that's always the hard lesson to learn initially is even people who are coming in from a high performance perspective, usually there's a few, few skeletons to clean before they can actually get to the the fun stuff, so to say.
2: Yeah. Most often, like we all, we all have them to one degree or another, right? It seems.
0: Yeah. That high performance comment is interesting because I've noticed that a lot of the folks who maybe they, they come in for high performance help. Um, a lot of them are in the world of achieving because they're trying to fill a a gaping hole in their heart left by neglect or trauma. And they're using a lot of their insecurities or they're using their pain as what I call the dirty burning fuel Mm. to to propel them into success. And I'm putting air quotes around success because usually in this space, when people say success, they mean a shit ton of money, right? Or they mean, Mm. uh, uh, adulation, they Mm. fame, right? Mm. Attention, uh, and so a lot of these folks they'll they'll get those things, they'll check those boxes and find that they are unhappy. I mean, how many how many times do we have to hear, Oh yeah, I know some billionaires that are really unhappy to understand this this point, this principle. So yeah, I think there's tremendous overlap. So
1: then it gets in like, how do we define success? How do we define meaning, purpose, fulfillment, what creates what creates mm-hmm. a life? Mm-hmm. And I think we go back
0: to community. So, you know, and it
1: kind of comes full circle then in terms of like so if the healing work is not, it's, it's never individual. If the healing work is always done, I think in 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 community, and and part of this healing that you're witnessing or experiencing is a sense of um, optics changing. You know what one thought mm-hmm. was previously valuable is no longer relevant or valuable, and how do we lead someone and grow grow them out of that? Because the truth is, the the I think the the fixation on money is, is, is sort of like a, it's a thing of this, this immature ego money's money's helpful. Money, money's necessary, you know, um, but like anything else in excess, it becomes toxic and poisonous. So, uh, I think that's also part of the work is just getting people to like, remember what actually brings them healing and meaning and fulfillment. And, um, unless they're a psychopath, it's usually not, you know, fame and money and all Those other things, but that's that's a whole nother point because there are a lot of psychopaths out there,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, a lot of them at the top of important organizations, exactly. <laughs> or or like presidents, you know, and some ways. right, right? Yeah, I like the word your use of the word remember. Uh, I think you know, it maybe implies that, uh, at our default, right, when we enter this world, this is our nature, mm-hmm. our nature to know these things about us, about what's meaningful, about what really will make us well and happy and fulfilled and connected. And then it gets conditioned out of us or beaten out of us or, uh, frightened out of us. We forget. And so we have to either remember or relearn.
2: Psychedelics remind us of our true nature. I like that, Mm -hmm. uh, that Mm -hmm. definition.
1: I like that too. It's almost like the
0: deconditioning, you know? Uh, I did find that quote that I butchered before. It's by E.O. Wilson. Um, We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Medieval institutions. I was close. Very close. I was close. Well, Paul, this has been a stimulating conversation. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? And uh, I have a tendency to, to... Make like we're wrapping up before Reed is done talking about stuff. So, Reed, I do <laughs> invite you to share wait, or ask Paul any wait, questions.
2: I want to talk some more. Just kidding. Uh, yeah. Nothing to add. Uh, your your question is completely valid. What's on Paul's mind? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think the only the only the thing would be to talk a little bit about some of the microdosing research and I think how that could be improved. Yeah. And yeah, um, I like that. And let's see, I think that's about, I mean, that's all, that's the only other thing
2: that I had at top of mind. Because so. you, you wrote a book on microdosing, correct? I wrote a book
1: and I have a new one coming out in a couple months. I'm just finalizing the manuscript with a lot of just updates. I mean, it's kind of the same basic skeleton, well, but a lot of updates and all that.
2: Because, because we, um, we get asked a lot about it. By our, our clients, our clinicians who get asked, who we supervise and get asked a lot about it, and because of all of our shared interest in this. And as a clinical trialist, I like to follow along uh, the papers that come out, too. And I realize that that's a tricky thing to study methodologically, and some of the recent studies um, that might point a finger at placebo response uh, might be premature in their conclusions and you know, I I I'll be the first to admit we need a, a mountain more of data and good solid study design. But I would love to hear your your take on it, having been uh, um, a part of this field for so long.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good starting point. It's like the the research has been mixed. Some of the clinical trials have shown that there is a dose response. to, let's say six and thirteen and twenty micrograms of LSD. The Beckley <clears throat> the Beckley Foundation did in vitro. Research showing that, you know, microdoses of LSD increased uh, BDNF. Um, There's been a lot of sort of qualitative research done uh, on Reddit subthreads and through apps like microdose.me with Paul Stamets that have shown that Mm -hmm. when when people are self-reporting, so observational research that people are seeing benefits. And yet there's been, you know, experimental research done at, you know, University of Chicago with Harriet DeWitt. And I think at maastricht university that's sh- that's shown less than you know useful output, so to say so it's it's really quite a mixed bag the I, I make I make a few things of it one my the researchers that I know who have studied research or who have published research on microdosing who didn't care much for it who or, or who have always been mm-hmm. outspoken opponents of it, their research tends to reflect their hypothesis or assumption, which is that it really has a null effect. And that uh, researchers who, in some ways, had used it and were had benefited from it, uh, have been creating research that shows that hey, it actually
0: is positive and beneficial. And so it's a really Paul. Are you are you implying there's bias <sighs> in research? Amazing, right? How dare you? Steve, did go ahead, read.
2: Did you not know that you can torture the data to tell it what you want to hear? <laughs>
0: I'd heard rumors. <laughs> I'd, I'm just, my worldview has been shattered. Talk about a perspective. Shift. Right. Anyway, and so it's it's, it's fun to see that
1: emerge in real time. My sense of like the, it's still so early stage. Most, most of the research is on high dose, you know, high dose psilocybin, high dose MDMA, high dose Ooh. ayahuasca. There's a bit of research that's on psycholytic dosing, which would be low dosing of psychedelics mm-hmm. in conjunction with something like psychotherapy or coaching even. And I think to really get a broad, a much broader understanding of how psychedelics work and how they will be integrated into our culture, we need a lot more research, not just on microdosing, but low dosing in general. It could be low dosing of ketamine. It could be low dosing of LSD, low dosing of psilocybin, low dosing of even something like ayahuasca, right? How, what does what that impact like on the gut? What does that impact on the brain? Uh, how does that change behavioral patterns? Um. That's what I'd like to see more of. And then also, you know, a lot of the microdosing research has not really paid attention to the usefulness of a coach or a guide. You know, for a lot of the mdma assisted psychotherapy research or the psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy research, they do extensive therapeutic sessions before, during, and after, which people say lend to a lot of the efficacy that is seen. And Mm -hmm. um, I think they need to do similar trials and studies of microdosing and low dosing to combine it with coaching or therapy or whatever it is. Because that's part of the paradigm that we're transforming is sort of a, a pill prescription paradigm into a much more um, care-based paradigm. Um, and I think that is, again, back to the conversation topic of community, that human-to-human interaction is central to the healing process. The medicine helps, but as we've seen now from from research over the last, I think, 40 years, SSRIs are actually no, no more effective than uh, placebo. Um and I think that's all that's obviously a whole nother conversation, but it, it just shows that psychedelics are helpful, but uh a lot of it is about the care and the the catalog. And I think
2: that one's subject yeah. to the same bias as what you mentioned about microdosing is um those who um you know are really not fans of the pharmaceutical industry and SSRIs, because you can find studies to to highlight that, you can find some positive ones. But I will tell you, my favorite microdosing study had the coolest outcome. It was like, I don't know, Van Elk uh, like a year ago. But uh, this is uh, microdosing led to more awe of videos of funny animals (laughs) and fuzzy things and moving objects. That was pretty cool. You got to post a link to that, Reed. I haven't seen that. We need
0: more awe. Like we need more awe and savoring and wonder. We're, we're, we're a jaded world right now, uh, which understandably so, but yeah. And, and you know, the, the, similar to the research on psychedelics and psychotherapy that, uh, psychotherapy seems to be a modulating effect for the e- efficacy that you could, I, there's a lot of research that says the same about SSRIs, that SSRIs in combination with psychotherapy do better than either alone. So who knows placebo effect is still an effect. Something's, something's going, going on. on, something's going on. Well this yeah, is fun. And just
2: to go ahead, Vita. to add one more thing, the uh the paper that came out last fall on uh the citizen science self blinding, where it had it was out of the London group, um Cisget- Cisgetti, uh lead author, Carhartt Harris on it, Amanda Fielding on it. That one that concluded um placebo was the best they could tell. Um it also had like a seventy plus percent unblinding or broken blinding in participants so like you know can you answer anything from it uh is my question exactly
0: yeah we the the, what usually is an annoying conclusion to almost any research study is we need more data we need Mm -hmm. more research which is
1: true and we can we can part of part of being an entrepreneur or part of you know writing or part of just being human is inferencing, you know, making inferences, sort Mm -hmm. of reading between the lines, and also then developing a trust within ourselves to make choices for ourselves about what's best for ourselves. I think that's That's also helpful.
0: Yeah. And like you were saying earlier, the scientific method is a method and it is an incredible method. And I'm glad we have it. It is one epistemology. It's one way of knowing. It's not the only way of knowing
2: yeah and it's a good point i mean real world evidence is uh is a pretty solid source of learning as well and you know the harm that someone might get from having a pocket full of psilocybin microdoses is really only around uh getting arrested you know by the police and and so but there is all that neuroplasticity um Preclinical data to guide us. So, so yeah, I I'm uh, intrigued and uh, pushing for more research for sure.
0: Well, Paul, thanks for spending an hour with us. Um, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing?
1: So, third wave, the third We have a newsletter that we send out. There's a directory of providers, clinics, retreats, therapists, coaches. If people are looking to navigate that, we have a bunch of guides uh, on on microdosing and all the other psychedelics. Um, I'm on Instagram at Paul Austin, three W and Twitter. So Paul Austin, three W on Instagram and Twitter. And, um, if people want to reach out, you know, have a question about the episode, just, you know, shoot me a note, send me a text or a DM. And I'm happy to, to, um, support.
0: Well, awesome.
2: Always fun to chat. Always fun to chat.
0: Thank you, dear listener for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others. And offer a variety of high quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.